This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it is fascinating every time. In one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Evie Wilde, author of the novel The Bass Rock. That's the only way I know how to do it, is just trust in the process that by sitting down and, and getting words down and writing that what you're interested in the story you want to tell will come to the surface after enough words. We'll be back with Evie Wilde after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is British novelist Evie Wilde, whose first book, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, was shortlisted for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award and won the John Llewellyn Rees Award. Her second novel, All the Birds Singing, won the Miles Franklin Literary Award, the Encore Award, and the European Union Prize for Literature. Her latest novel, The Bass Rock, won the Stella Prize. Wilde lives in London, and in addition to writing, owns a small, independent bookshop in South London called Review. Her novel, The Bass Rock, weaves together the lives of three women living in different centuries, but all moved in some way by the same rock formation bursting from the sea. The Bass Rock is the witness to the generations of women whose fates are inextricably linked to this place and one another. Sarah is accused of being a witch and is fleeing for her life. Ruth is navigating a new marriage in the aftermath of World War II, and Viv is mourning the death of her father while cataloging Ruth's belongings in her now empty house near the Bass Rock. The story is about violence, survival, and resilience, ghosts, agency, and escape. We began the discussion with me asking Evie Wilde this question. The Bass Rock was so complex and complicated, and I wanted to ask you to... Like, close your eyes and envision it was kind of like the first day that you really had the idea or started writing. And how did you manage such a big book if you were to explain it to our audience? Like, how you tackled this project, if that makes sense? It, I mean, it's not going to be a simple answer, I'm afraid. It. I feel like I started this book several times over. I feel like it's built on the bones of about two other novels. It's very first, the very first idea was um, just after my father and my grandmother died, I inherited the family photo albums and I saw all of these photographs of my dad as a young kid with my grandmother in front of the Bass Rock. And it's a place that I used to go a lot when I was a kid as well. It was like a family holiday place. And so there was this weird telescoping of time um, that happened. And I knew my grandmother as um, an alcoholic and a chain smoker. And, you know, through the lens of my father, that she wasn't a great mother and that he hadn't enjoyed being her son. <laughs> and it had all been a bit of a hassle for her having children. And she inherited two boys um, from my grandfather, from his first wife. So there was this disjunction I think in those photographs for me sort of looking at the closeness of my dad and my grandmother outside the rock and um and what I knew of how their relationship kind of matured and and went very wrong and how I knew my grandmother to be this fierce um bored angry woman so what I really wanted to do in the first instance was just reimagine her young life um, 
and think about who she was before she was the person that I knew not very well and sort of look at what might have made her go from this quite vivacious looking woman in the photographs to someone who was quite desperate to die by the time I knew her. Um, So there was that part of it. And then, you know, about a year later, I, um, I had a baby and I was writing in his naps. So for an hour a day, and that meant I didn't have the luxury of sitting down and thinking about what I wanted to write. I just had to write in that one hour a day. And what came out were all of these female voices. A lot of the um, the sort of peril in the book came out in, in those moments. And then it felt like it started again when Me Too happened, when that movement started and it felt like all of these voices were linked and it, it, it made a sense to me with that as a background that it was about women and stories and um, the, the stuff that we don't talk about. So I think I started it again and again and again, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly, you know, the first word I wrote. So when you start off thinking, or at least being inspired by your real life grandmother and end up writing this novel that's, it's kind of like a triptych. There's three different stories and there is, as you mentioned, so much peril. There's so much focus and thematic information as well as real story information about violence against women and women being murdered by men, a lot of times the men that they know. Is that a scary process when you're in the beginning of that to not know really what it's about? I think it actually, I find it really comforting. If I thought that I had to have a novel in my head before I started writing, I would never... I would never attempt it, I think. And for a long time, that's what I thought you needed um, before I wrote my first book. I thought that you had to have solidified something that you wanted to say, and then you had to say it in a twisty-turny, exciting way that, you know, I don't know, it feels like an impossible thing to me. And I know that there are writers who do plan meticulously before they start writing, but I just can't do it that way. My brain doesn't function in that way. So what I need to do is I work on the bits I really enjoy, like place, and then I pop a character in there and see what they do. It's it's more about letting them tell the story. And they tell a lot of other stories that don't make it to the finished novel that are on the cutting room floor that um, feel like the essential part of the novel. And then I get to a dead end with them. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame that, you know, 20,000 words needs to be ripped out. But for me, that's part of it. It takes me a very long time. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But that's how that's the only way I know how to do it is just trust in the process that by sitting down and, and getting words down and writing that what you're interested in the story you want to tell will come to the surface after enough words. What do you think it was about having an hour with a new baby that brought you to the more perilous stories, the the stories of women, of the violence against women and the, the, the dangers women face from men in this society? I mean, you feel quite violent when you have a baby. <laughs> You feel um, in a kind of high, a state of high alert, I think. I was very aware of having, you know, fought quite hard 
to have the career as a novelist that I had and then the assumption being that I would have a baby and then stop writing and become a you know that that was very much in the air you know good luck writing after that's born and all of that sort of stuff which I think people they're not um trying to be unkind when they say that but it did put the wind up me a bit (laughs) um so there's that and there's just this sudden understanding of what it means what it can mean to have that kind of responsibility like to need to protect something and the thing that I was protecting was a little boy and it suddenly threw me for a bit of a loop I think I just assumed the whole time that I would be having a girl and you know protecting a girl is is terrifying enough but protecting a boy from becoming toxic man is such a responsibility and I felt this sort of desperate need to be enough and through that I think a lot of violence came out a lot of like thinking about how this can go wrong you know how it does go wrong frequently and how we let these little nice little slugs out into the world which are completely you know blameless and sexless and everything and they get stamped with all of these you know masculine feminine all of this stuff and with my son it you know I I would see it he'd come back from nursery and suddenly he's like all about trucks and blue things and you're just like what is going on so yeah it, lack of sleep leads to uh, a kind of a strange state which is not necessarily the worst place to write from I don't think it's the healthiest but um but I think feeling that pressure, that slight madness that you get when you're um, terrified <laughs> is quite is quite a boost. I was like, this is the o- literally the only thing other than feeding my son that I can do in a day. So I better do it. Yeah. And it is, you know, you don't flinch at it's really I mean, yes, you have in individual stories of murders and Many of your women are abused throughout your stories, but it's you're just reflecting the culture back. Yeah, I think it's hard when you're when you're working on something and you're up close to it. It is hard to see what you've written. Um, but I was surprised by the kind of the response of like, oh my god, such a high body count, such a you know what a dark mind you must have, all of this stuff. And it's like, no, this is just what women think about. We've gone through these scenarios a hundred times. You know, we've we've walked to the car with the keys in our fist. We've we've got our strategies for what we do in these situations that I've written about. We've we've all thought of them, and and then when we veer off that path and something bad starts to happen, we start to blame ourselves and we think, oh, why am I out past nightfall? Why am I? You know. So I think. I think we live with, women live with all of these terrible things. It's exhausting. And I think it took, strangely took something like me too to to realise that we were living with them and that there is all this buried trauma and all of this, all of this stuff that we didn't recognise as trauma. We just recognised it as part of being born into a female body. And, you know, I have lots of friends who female friends who you know we've sat down and the conversation has turned to me too and and how we felt about it and whether or not they spoke up at the time they're like 
sat down and made a list of all of the things that have happened to me in my time and realised I've been raped several times or I've been abused several times and I just didn't count it as that because it was just it just felt like part and parcel of being female. So I think there is so much that we don't show to the world of being a woman and of abuse and violence. Yeah, so you you take all these big realistic ideas and you fold it into the story. Over time, you have three different main characters. Your your first one is Sarah and she is accused of being a witch. And she ends up being, quote, saved by a man and his son who had lost their wife and a sister, a daughter for the man. And they are on the run with her. But they are saving her, but they also seem to have some other intentions with her, whether it's love or lust or something like that. So there's and that's back in time a little bit. And then in the more recent time, you have Ruth, who is based on your grandmother, who is this woman who is the second wife to a man named Peter, who is not very kind to her. He does hit her and gaslights her. And she is the stepmother of two children. And she's just lost and really alone in the world. And it's her, she had lost her brother in World War II and is very lonely. And then we see the last generation through Viv, Ruth is her step-grandmother, and Viv is also maybe just been in a mental institution, and Ruth was too, or almost institutionalized, and she is back at Ruth's house going through things after her death, and also dealing, her sister has an abusive partner, and she's just trying to figure out where she is in the world, and this is all happening around the Bass Rock so the, that's the trajectory of the stories. No, it's great. I mean, it's, I can't believe I wrote something so complicated. <laughs> and there's so many other characters too, which I was like, how does she keep track of all of these people? Because there's fairs and families coming over for dinner and just so much to keep track of. Like, did you have a system? No, I think part of my process is I get really lost. And that is important it turns out (laughs) so after about um two or three years of writing when I have a big chunk and I get the feeling that the story is in there it then becomes this like process of figuring out how the story goes and you know printing everything out and literally cutting it up with scissors and pasting it with glue um, to try and work out what the story is and, and how it needs to work and what the structure is And I think maybe because I have got a very large Brambly family, it kind of helps me keep abreast of, you know, the one of the things that fascinated me about my grandmother is that um, she had her her two stepkids and then she had three more. And each kid has a totally different viewpoint of how she was as a mother and who she was. And so I think that is part of what fascinates me about reading and writing and that that different viewpoint. So it is, you know, my books tend to be a bit like all over the place in that respect because I love having different viewpoints and different, you know, echoes so that you'll hear, you'll overhear somebody not that 
involved in the story talking about a main character as they were in later life and um, that you don't get to see them in the story. So that sort of thing I find really interesting and because it's how the information comes to me as my grandmother's granddaughter. It's like I hear stories about her and I kind of pick them and, and try and work out which ones are true. <laughs> And I guess the witness to all of this was the Bass Rocks, was um, this idea that your environment is is steady and always watching or absorbing that pain or those stories. And I was curious about this concept and how, I know it's a real place that, that influenced you, how you rose it to that level in your novel. I think the Bass Rock is one of those places that it's got so much nostalgia for me and like back projected nostalgia. I don't think I realised when I started writing the book that it was that important a place to me because when I went there as a child, it wasn't like I had the best time or anything. It was just, this is where my family are. And it was this grand old house. It's the house that most of the action set in. Um, that belonged to my great aunt. And she, you know, she lived in this huge house with just her maid and she'd had a stroke, so she was part paralysed and she could only say the word lovely. So she'd say that in response to anything. And it was just strange to be a young kid in that setting. And, you know, every meal was this ornately laid table and then it was, like, all pureed food. because, And, you know, it was, like deeply English despite the fact that it's in Scotland and the weather was always hideous it was like Easter so it was like the coldest part of our weather over here and I think the rock itself and the law which is a big hill behind it on the land I think when I look at them I have like a visceral like I feel like my heart pumps a little bit differently I feel like I understand something now I didn't at the time um, but I was up there uh, last week for an event in a library in Dunbar and my hotel room faced the Bass Rock. And I was just, I just spent about two hours just looking at it. And, you know, knowing that my father, there's a, there's a tunnel underneath it that you can, you can go through in a boat at low tide. And knowing that my father had done that was sort of weird. And you're kind of like, he touched that rock somehow you know that he's been there and it it's sort of I'm always interested in thinking about time and you know we think of time as being linear and I think especially when somebody's died and it's been a bad death like he was very ill for a long time and it went on and on and on and for a long time you think of them as that person wasting away in the bed and the rock for me brings him back to childhood you know before I knew him obviously and that is so fascinating and, and helpful. I think in terms of the women in the book, it sort of does that thing that it spans the past and the present and it reaches into the future. I did have a go at writing, you know, future murders in the book, um, which didn't make it into the final cut. I think that's what it is, really. It's, it's being able to have like a linchpin that you can look at and you can go, I know who's been here before me and I know that, you know, my son will go there in the future after my death. And it just stretches time out for me. I want to talk a little bit about each 
situation in each woman. So let's let's start with Sarah, who was accused of being a witch. And from her story, there were some memories and objects passed down that end up later. It's it's subtle, but also ghosts. There there were the idea of ghosts that I think began with her. Can you just talk a little bit about her situation? So Sarah's sort of the classic. She's a, a young girl on her own. Her mother was accused of being a witch and she escaped that particular kind of violence. And her mother was accused of being a witch for all the usual reasons that she didn't have a husband and she was good with herbs and, you know, helped as a midwife, um, all those all that good stuff that got you killed. And it's actually time-wise, it's to, it's really towards the end of the time that people were persecuting witches, but it's set in a very rural place where, um, where there's been famine and people are looking for someone to blame. So she just happens to wander in to this village and gets caught. And because the villagers are so riled up, they're looking for a scapegoat, really. And she happens upon the family that are desperate for sort of another chance. I think that, you know, while there is a lot of lust and love and complicated feelings from the two men that she escapes with, there's also this, like, you know, this is our second chance. She's going to redeem us. It's going to be okay because now we've saved this girl and they're putting all of that on her. So, yeah, and, and she's seen very, she's seen through from the point of view of Joseph, the son, um, which felt really important. It felt important to have a male point of view because I wanted to show Joseph going from being a boy into being a man and what that meant um, without kind of giving too much away. And that, you know, he's quite a sympathetic character for much of the book I think she's a quiet she's a more subtle character I think than the other two because it's not through her point of view in a way if the if the book was its own history of the world that started with Sarah I felt Mm. like in some ways she kind of represented original sin from Mm. from women because she had agency and that was her sin yes yeah I think all three women rebel in some way so yeah she was on her own and making her own way Ruth questions what's going on why she's being gaslit why she's been brought to this place in Scotland uh, where she's kind of left alone a lot of the time and Viv doesn't have any of the things that we think of as um, successful for for women of her age you know she doesn't have a career or a partner or any children so in the eyes of society she's just a bit of a lost cause Um, and they all are punished for their their rebellion I think. And with Ruth you know she's in deep mourning she loved her brother her brother you don't have a ton of sympathetic characters who are men but her brother was one of them and her stepson and she is in a lot of pain and she's basically newly married to this guy in inhab- you know has to take care of his two 
kids that aren't hers that she she loves and he's gone all the time and he gaslights her and he's having an affair and another child she's left in this new town in Scotland that she's never been to before and one of the scenes and I was thinking about this because there's a few scenes that (laughs) disturb me the most and they're so well written are not the scenes where someone is actually dead or being murdered and I was thinking that was so sad for me because I'm so used to seeing that, that that doesn't touch me as much as maybe the, the tension of something else. And Ruth was in, it was like a fete or like a, like a picnic that they have in their community. And one of the things that happens traditionally is the women would go and they would dress up in costume and be disguised in some way. And they'd have to go hide and the men would have to come find them and like poke at them. And you wrote the scene um, where she's just being poked at and prodded and she's not going along and she's not enjoying it. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, writing an incident like that, if you've ever seen a fair like that, and if I characterized anything wrong, please tell me. Yeah, so so the it's a winter picnic, which is just the sort of horrific thing that English people do when they're on holiday. And the idea is that all of the women are dressed in slightly witchy clothes, um, and they have a mask on, so you can't tell one from the other, and they all get a bit pissed, and then... The women all go and hide and the men find them. So it's a game of hide and seek. And when you find a witch, you have to tickle them until they give up their name. And that's how you win. Um, and obviously it's a, you know, it's a tradition that they have there. It's all obviously completely made up. But um, I wanted to talk about the, you know, the traditional idea of, of who women should be. And that is somebody who doesn't make things uncomfortable for men. So tickling is is one of those like grey areas. Well, I don't think it's a grey area. I think it's a red area. Um, but it's an excuse to prod and feel and own another person's body. And because they're laughing, you take that as consent. And And there's no... You couldn't tell somebody that they were in trouble. You couldn't report them to anyone because they tickled you. That's not a thing. <laughs> and But actually, tickling to me feels like such a perfect metaphor for rape. Your body responds to it in certain ways because it's a body. And so those responses can be interpreted as consent. I just feel like the, the things that you would say in order to complain that somebody has tickled you are the same things that um, often get rebuffed with um people reporting rape you know well you know you invited him to do it by saying I don't like to be tickled that is always seen as an invitation to tickle someone you were laughing during it is seen as you were enjoying it even though your body just makes these noises of panic and you know so yeah that's that's sort of where I was going in that um in that scene and it it also I wanted it to show how alone Ruth felt that she couldn't she couldn't talk to Peter about it she couldn't say oh this awful thing just happened because there's all of these other people who think it's great fun and think it's all you know 
British japes. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's true of a lot of situations. One of the things you did that was so eloquent is that you, you kind of repeated that idea in the next generation, but in a much more intimate way. So Ruth was at a fair with a lot of strangers or townsfolk that maybe she knew or didn't. And it was, there was so much pressure to go along. But then later Viv has this casual relationship with this man and she's ambivalent about him at best, but he comes over and you have a scene where she literally says like, I hate being tickled, which is not an invitation. This is always a stupid thing to say. It is always received as an invitation. And I'm wondering if there's anything in that little section on 252 that you would want to read. So, yeah, I guess I'll read the um, his response, maybe, after the tickling. Vincent sits upright in bed and makes little bunny ears with his fingers, fixing me with a peculiar look, his teeth bared. What are you supposed to be, the fucking Easter Bunny? He carries on staring, moving closer, begins sort of purring or growling. I have missed something. He straddles my chest and his thighs clamp tight around me. He bends down close to my face. I remain smiling because there is a joke I'm not getting. And this is all it is. I am the thing that watches you through your window at night, he whispers. There is a moment, just a pulse. Like when you step into the road and a car sweeps by close enough that you feel it as a wind on your face and you feel it to the tips of your fingers, but then it's gone and what remains is anger. Can you get off me, please? You're heavy. Vincent takes down his bunny ears and I think he will dismount, but instead he begins to tickle me. Oh, fuck off. I go to roll him off, expecting him to allow me, but he does not, so I slap at his chest. Get off me. But he keeps digging. But he keeps going, digging at my ribs, that awful feeling coming on me, the loss of breath, the loss of control, and I hit him hard in a panic, make contact with his ear, and he grabs my wrists, holds me down, and the panic worsens. What the fuck? I hear myself, myself say over and over, because no other words will come, and the breath is gone. He lowers his face so that his nose touches mine, and he sits staring into my eyes, close up, squeezing hard with his thighs, and his hands on my wrists, breathing through his nose like a bull. And I say, what the fuck are you doing? Tears in my voice, but he remains silent, his head pushing down on mine. It feels like it goes on for a long time, and then he sits up and gets off me and walks to the loo without saying anything, closes the door. I lie in bed for a moment, then I get up and pull on my jeans and a T-shirt and fumbling for my bag when he comes back in, brushing his teeth with my toothbrush. What the fuck are you doing? He asked through a mouthful of foam. What the fuck am I doing? Is all I can think to say. Yeah, he says. What the fuck are you doing? Why are you dressed? I was going to make some clams or something. Vincent, what the hell was that? He casts his eyes around the room. What? How do you mean? Is there a spider? What you just did. He holds out the toothbrush and looks at it. Are you angry I used your toothbrush? No, I don't understand what that was just now in bed. What are you saying? A look of horror comes over him. He swallows as much of the foam as he can. The tickling. He exhales. Jesus, he says and smiles. Fuck. For a minute I thought you were going to say I raped you or something. 
Do you remember writing that? Not especially, no. Um, I think I remember I remember writing the bit with the bunnies and the bit where um, he seems like someone else or something else. There are, there are very few parts of the book that I remember writing. <laughs> He's gaslighting her, and then the last indignity, he uses her toothbrush. It's yes. just like the ownership over anything in there, including her body, is just his for the taking. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that as much before, but yeah, no, totally. Top to tail. <laughs> People probably have their own philosophy on whether they'll share their toothbrush, and it's probably a hard yes or a hard no. There's not really is something in the middle, but they didn't know they didn't know each other very well at that point. Yeah, I think like Vincent as a character was really important to me because I wanted to um, I wanted to sort of set up a rom-com situation where Viv, who by all accounts is a little bit busted up and broken, encounters this man and the immediate thought from pop culture is this man is going to fix her or she is going to help this man to be his best self. You know, that's what's supposed to happen in a rom-com. And almost always, he's a kind of pot-smoking bum and, you know, likes fart jokes and, you know, so do I. But, um, <laughs> but you know, there's a, there's a type of man that is a boy and that needs a mother and them getting together is supposed to mean that she relaxes and becomes a bit more, um, like, lightens up and then he becomes a little bit more responsible. Not much, but just a little bit. And there's supposed to be a point at which they fall in love. And then after that, there's a misunderstanding. And it seems like they won't make it. And then they get back together and it's all fine. And um, one, you know, spoiler alert and all that. But one of the most satisfying parts of writing this was to be able to just have her go, do you know what? We're not making a big deal out of this, but I'm not seeing it anymore. Just partway through the book and just completely do away with those expectations. And she just is like, I'm fine on my own, actually. I just don't have to go. I don't have to walk that line. I don't have to pair up with somebody who is not going to make me happy. I'm curious about, I want to go back to something that he said to her in that scene, but I first wanted to ask her, you, about your interest in human behavior. And did you grow up kind of as an observer? Did you study psychology? I think you mentioned you had a big family. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but I was very sick as a child. And then I was on anti-epilepsy medicine for quite a long time um, growing up. So I was slow. <laughs> I was slow and very shy and very quiet. So I would just slip into a room and observe, not because I was like, I'm here observing human nature, but just because there was no other way of being. Um, and people didn't notice me because I was so quiet. So I think possibly that's got something to do with it. Also, I had a, I read a lot because I was ill a lot. And so I guess I I had a bit of an imagination. I think the reason that I started to write in the first place was to try and figure out what I thought about people. And because um, I feel like I've never been particularly eloquent 
um, when I'm speaking. And so for me, watching people have these huge opinions about stuff and to be sure of their own standing within you know, the ground they were talking about, it amazed me. And the only way that I felt like I could sort of work out what I thought about anything was by writing it down and writing down all of the possible versions of a person and, you know, how a person might feel and where they might be coming from. So that was kind of where writing started for me, just trying to understand a bit, a bit more. So back to something that he said, uh, uh, he said something like, I'm the person that watches you at night. And you had this idea throughout uh, this symbolism and some got more even beyond symbolism of, of foxes and wolves. And you had a character, Maggie, who's a friend of Viv's, who I really loved. I want to talk about her next, but um, who talked about the wolf man. And so there was this theme throughout of, it was it was symbolic, but it was really talking about these men. And I just wanted to ask you about the meaning of that for you and putting that in the book. So partly, I'm a big fan of horror. <laughs> and so I'm always kind of leaning on the side of like, could Vincent actually be a werewolf? Or could, you know, could we just drop a monster in the background? Um, I always feel like I have to rein that in a bit, um, just out of enjoyment. But also... I think there's there's something in that particular moment, something in male anger when it's perceived by women, and not all male anger, but there's a certain kind of male anger which is which really um, changes the person. I think morphs them into someone that you don't know. And I suppose I'm, you know, my father was a brilliant man and vivacious and wonderful but also had a completely uncontrollable temper and when he was raging it was like somebody you'd never met and that you would never meet again and and he wouldn't remember it the next day conveniently and so I think I wanted to I wanted to kind of prod at that uncomfortable thing that what ang- what damage anger does um and how separate from the human it feels yeah, and, and then how that relates to foxes and wolves. Um, so I've always sort of been interested in wolf men and, you know, driving in a car at night when I was a kid, it would be a focused sort of fantasy in my head that there was a wolf man running alongside the car. And sort of the more I've thought about wolves and foxes, the more I've kind of I've sort of thought of them as as standing in for intuition, for female intuition. So so the idea that a wolf, there's some wolf imagery and it might be an outward symbol to a woman of danger. So it's not something I've gone into particularly much in the book, but I'm writing a script for it at the minute and I'm kind of going into it much more. And I'm, I'm sort of, because when I put them in, I knew they were important, but you don't always know exactly what they mean. You know, when you we go back and read through a book, you can pull out things and go, what does this symbolise? But when you're writing it, sometimes you're just like, I don't know what that is, but it's going in and it feels right. And what I've discovered is their wolves in particular are very much about female intuition. And there's a scavengery aspect to foxes. Um, I think the fact that, I don't know if it, how this 
works where you are, but in, in London we have urban foxes and they're everywhere and they, um, they scream at night and their scream sounds like a woman screaming and they are, you know, tame in that they're, they're not afraid of people, not tame in a lovely, like, let's have a cuddle way, but tame as in they'll stay down in the street. And so I just think there's something interesting there. I haven't, I don't like to too firmly mark out what a symbol is, but it's around that area, I think. So is this going to be a film? Hopefully, touching a lot of wood, a TV series. So I had mentioned Maggie, who is a friend of Viv's. She, when Viv comes back to look through the house, uh, she meets her at the grocery store and kind of randomly, like Maggie doesn't have the same kind of boundaries or filters that most people have. She harkens back a little bit to Sarah. Like you can tell she has power. She is a witch. She's a sex worker. And she... um She's kind of a catalyst in, in some way. She really gets along with most people. She she makes people think. Um, she has some lines where she's talking to Viv and she says, do you ever scare yourself? She says as she moistens the edge of her paper. Do you ever look at yourself in the mirror for such a long time that you start to see something else? Like there's someone else under the skin. Have you ever looked in the mirror and deliberately made an ugly face barred your teeth, growled and snarled and become suddenly aware that there is something else inside of you that you're not letting out. Like we're the wolves and that's why we're hunted. I know you said you don't remember writing things, but this seemed like an important thing for her to say. Yeah, I think Maggie works as the voice of all of the stuff that Viv would want to say. I think Maggie is very much the um, the kind of narrator in a way she's she's sort of straddles um she straddles a lot of the the timelines because she knows a lot of stuff if that isn't particularly gone into um in the book but it's in my head she was just somebody who was um I guess a female gaze version of a pixie dream girl <laughs> so it's like you know, she's quite annoying to Viv, actually. Like, you, you know, she's just, like, asked what she does for a job, and she's like, oh, I'm a witch, and Viv is a bit like, sure. <laughs> um, but she's kind of the... I guess she's she lives in a very sensory way. She, she pays attention to her intuition, to her instinct, and that's how she lives day to day. So she sort of works to show Viv what is possible, I think. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? Sure. So I'm going to read a bit from The Riders by Tim Winton, um, which was the book that helped me to start writing novels. Um, I literally sat down and counted how many words he used to do certain things like evoke a place or a character. And this is just... um, It's just a very short bit of place with Tim Winton. Um, It's set in Ireland, this part, and he's an Australian man. It was a small house, simple as a child's drawing and older than his own nation. Two rooms upstairs, two down, classic vernacular, like a model from the old textbooks. It stood alone on the bare scalp of a hill called The Leap. 200 yards below it, separated by a stand of ash trees and a hedged lane, 
was the remains of a Gothic castle, a tower house, and the and fallen wings that stood monolithic above the valley with its farms and soaplands. From where Scully stood, beneath the crackling chimney, he could see the whole way across the sleeve blue mountains, at whose feet the valley and its patchwork of farms lay like a twisted shawl. Wherever you looked in that direction, you saw mountains beyond and castle in the corner of your eye. The valley squeezed between them, things, colours, creatures slipped by in their shadow, and behind, behind the leap, there was only the lowest of skies. And I just think he's amazing. Um, he always starts with place, which is what I do. Um, and you can sort of tell that he knows exactly that landscape. Um, and he shows it to you in such an interesting, sort of beautiful, but um, it's not sort of wildly prosaic. It's quite, not basic language, but it's language that his character Scully knows. Um, so yeah, I just think he's a, he's a magnificent writer. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So I'm going to read, like, I'm going to um, do the sort of forbidden thing and read the ending. So massive spoiler alert. Um, and I'm going to read the ending because there are so many threads to this book, I had to end it several different times in several different ways. Um, and ending a book is really hard um, because you have to leave enough out and you have to know when to shut up. <laughs> the baby did not wake up, even in her dangerous arms. The rain that had been threatening since the early morning released and somewhere through an open window came the smell of it like old stone. Ruth shushed the baby and gently jigged her up and down, not because she needed comfort, but because that was what she'd seen mothers do and because Ruth felt afraid for the pink creature, at a loss of how to help it. She wished to be the sort of person who could comfortably sing to take away the silence and the heavy feeling the child gave her. There was lightning, but for the moment no thunder, and rain fell harder, making the rose heads in the garden shudder. She could see out on the bass rock, the rain coming down like a lace veil that made the edges blend into the clouds. If she had lived, she would have been just like you. She didn't think it, but the words sounded in her head as if they had been injected there with a thick syringe. Behind the piano, the girl appeared, picking as she always did at her fingers. Look, Ruth thought loudly. Look, it's a baby. The girl stayed there where she was, flickered a little as thunder rolled over the water, as though she was startled by it. There was a feeling that in the drawing room, there was more than just the girl, like the hammering of rain on the windows had summoned a host of others. The baby twitched in her sleep, her lips moving like she fed in her dream. And that's the end of Ruth's part. And it's sort of, I had to, I think one of the things with having multiple timelines is you have to somehow have a scene where they all bleed into each other. And I guess that was where it happened. <laughs> Where do you write? I write uh, at my desk, um, which is also the laundry, um, or I write in a chain cafe because then I don't feel bad about taking up a lot of space and time with one coffee. 
What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I like drawing. Um, so I do, I draw with a black pen, like not very good little scribbly, scratchy drawings. Um, and I listen to ghost stories on um, podcasts. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I was very lucky in that I met my husband on a writing course. So we met tearing each other's work to shreds. And he is now a very talented editor. So he's always my first reader and he's brutal, which is really useful. <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection? I think I've dealt with it by uh, taking people at their word. So if somebody says, uh, it's not for me, believing that and, you know, not reading anything else into it. I think if everybody likes your work, you're doing something wrong and um, and sort of wallowing a little bit, like happily in the, in like bad Amazon reviews. That's quite an enjoyable thing to do. <laughs> Have a sense of humour about it, basically. What is your favourite word? No. <laughs> Evie, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for this time. Yeah. That's been really nice. Thank you. If you like today's show with Evie Wild, author of the novel The Bass Rock, check out my interview with Katie Kitamura on her book A Separation. We talked about characters who can't process their own emotions, what faithlessness means, and the idea of performance in the midst of pain. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights and craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sarah Manguso, Douglas Stewart, Keith O'Brien, Jacinda Townsend, Jeffrey Yang, and Ada Limon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.